Good morning. Good morning on this beautiful snowy 
March morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Anna Gresh and I am a member of this congregation and we all extend a very warm special welcome to all of you and anyone joining us also online. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital force for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We're an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, we welcome you here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, and so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And with that, let's gather our hearts and minds for worship. But I would like to read you some announcements. First of all, the memorial gathering to celebrate Ollie Kyler's life will take place in Yaki Hall on Saturday, March 18th at 4 in the afternoon. Today's revisioning luncheon is postponed due to the weather. People who signed up will be contacted about rescheduling for a future date. Of very special importance is that next Saturday night at 7.30, we will be hosting a special concert entitled The Year to Save the Earth. It will be led by guitarist, singer, songwriter, and activist Jim Scott, who wrote our beloved hymn, Gather the Spirit, and several other songs that the UU folks have used throughout the last several decades. Please join us for this musical event. We'd love to fill the atrium um, when we host this lovely concert. And then next Sunday, since Jim Scott will be here um, and, and in charge of as the guest speaker and musician for the service, we would like to have a glorified coffee hour. And we encourage you to bring a treat for that coffee hour next, for after next Sunday's service. And so with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship and join me in, recital, in reciting the church's chalice lighting, which the words are in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. understand that perfectly. <laughs> well, we gather this Sunday and 
There are more of you than I thought would come. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We gather on the ancestral home of so many other peoples, indigenous peoples, the Anishinaabe, the Menominee, the Potawatomi, the Ho-Chunk Nation, and we remember our obligations to good stewardship of these lands and our obligations to them and our relationships with them. So here we are, we're gathered. May we be reminded here of our highest aspirations and inspired to bring our gifts of love and service to the altar of humanity. May we know once again that we are not isolated beings, but connected in mystery and miracle to the universe, to this community, and to each other. I invite you to open your gray hymnals to hymn number 347, Gather the Spirit. And if you would rise in body or spirit as you are able. and strength 
celebrate once again. And if you would stay, remain standing in body or spirit and join with me in our affirmation. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to serve in freedom, to serve human lead, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. And join singing with the doxology. Please be seated. Well, our story today comes from Arnold Lobel. Arnold uh, Lobel wrote the Frog and the Toad series of, of stories, and, and this particular book is called Fables. And the story that I'm reading is called The Frogs at Rainbow's End. A frog was swimming in a pond after a rainstorm. He saw a brilliant rainbow stretching across the sky. I have heard, said the frog, there is a cave filled with gold at the place where the rainbow ends. I will find that cave and be the richest frog in the world. The frog swam to the edge of the pond as fast as he could go. There he met another frog. Where are you rushing to? asked the second frog. I am rushing to the place where the rainbow ends, said the first frog. There is a rumor, said the second frog, that there is a cave filled with gold and diamonds at that place. Well, then come with me, said the first frog. We will be the two richest frogs in the world. Well, the two frogs jumped out of the pond and ran through the meadow, and there they met another frog. What is the hurry? asked the third frog. We are running to the place where the rainbow ends, said the two frogs. I have been told, said the third frog, there is a cave filled with gold and diamonds and pearls at that place. Well, then come with us, said the first frog. We will be the three richest frogs in the world. Well, the frogs ran for miles, miles and miles, and finally they came to the rainbow's end. There they saw a dark cave in the side of a hill. Gold, diamonds, pearls, cried the frogs as they leaped into the cave. I will leave the ending to you. What do you suppose they found in that cave? How happy were they with their gold, their diamonds, their pearls? What did they do with their wealth? 
And that's the end of my story, and I'm sticking to it. We'll sing the children out. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or a recurring gift online. And on behalf of Carl Drake, who didn't ask me to say this, I would encourage anyone to, who hasn't turned in their pledge yet for this coming year to do so. Thank you.
Hafiz was a 14th century Persian poet who wrote, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. Please join me in this time of silent prayer, meditation, thoughtfulness. I invite you to open your gray hymnals to hymn number 16. It is a gift to be simple. Remain seated if you would. shan't be ashamed 
In his 2007 book, Stumbling on Happiness, author Daniel Gilbert, uh, a Harvard social psychologist, writes, consider money. Economists and psychologists have spent decades studying the relation between wealth and happiness, and they have generally concluded that wealth increases human happiness when it lifts people out of abject poverty and into the middle class, but it does little to increase happiness thereafter. North Americans who earn, and you may have to adjust this for, for the, the inflation, who earn between fifty and $75,000 per year are much happier than those who earn ten or $20,000 per year, but North Americans who earn $5 million per year are that much happier than those who earn a mere one million. People who live in very poor nations are much less happy than people who live in moderately wealthy nations, but people who live in moderately wealthy nations are not much less happy than people who live in extremely wealthy nations. Economists explain that wealth has declining marginal utility which is a fancy way of saying that it hurts. It hurts to be hungry, cold, sick, tired, and scared. But once you've bought your way out of these burdens, the rest of your money is an increasingly useless pile of paper. And our second reading is by Robert Walsh. Um, he's a, a UU minister for, for oh, decades and decades. And he writes, in the newspaper, there was a story about a seminary professor in Kansas City who was put on trial by the Southern Baptists, accused of being a universalist. You know, everybody goes to, to heaven. Nobody goes to hell. What an idea. It's no wonder they were suspicious. He had stated publicly his belief that all people born into the world are children of God. And as if this were not enough, he also supported the ordination of women. Oh, case closed. The professor denied the charges. I am not a universalist, he said. And he convinced them. After four hours of deliberation, they voted 21 to 11 to let him keep his job. Now, I confess to being a universalist. In fact, I am a Unitarian universalist. But I wonder, if I were arrested and charged with being, with being one, would there be enough evidence to convict me? The Kansas City story strongly suggests that having the right beliefs is not enough. 
The professor believed that all people are brothers and sisters, that every person has a, a piece of the divine spark, that women are the equals of men in the sight of God. That was not enough to bring in a guilty verdict. No, if they are going to pin Unitarian Universalism on me, they will have to be able to show that I participated in and supported a Unitarian Universalist church. That is the only way to be sure. Beliefs, no matter how noble, must be embodied in a living institution or they will have no convicting power. I was wondering, yes.
Well, the comedian Woody Allen tells us, money is better than poverty, if only for financial reasons. Well, money is better than poverty. Money matters. It puts, puts food on the table, a, a roof over our heads, some heat and light, education, health care, and that cup of coffee or tea or that smoothie, fruit smoothie that we have in the morning. That's what money means. But, but what else? What does money mean not only in our material lives? What, if anything, does money mean in our spiritual lives? To really explore what money means to us, let's ask ourselves some questions, questions about the present, some questions about the past. So, how much was your first allowance? And how did you use that allowance? Did you get an allowance? What were my family's attitudes towards money? Did you know how much your father or mother earned? Do you know how much your siblings earn, or your spouse or partner? How much did I make at my first job? How much at my lowest paying job? Pretty low, it's a waitress job. And how much at my highest paying job? What are our policies about giving away money? about spending money, about saving it. What do I need and what do I want? How much do I spend in a week or a month? How much am I worth? How much is in my retirement fund? How much do I own and how much do I owe? Do I have a, a buying addiction, uh, buying what sort of things, or other addictions towards money, uh, gambling or hoarding? What is my philosophy of giving to panhandlers, giving to charitable organizations, my philosophy about giving to friends or relatives, my philosophy about giving to the church? Now, that was a whole list of questions. How uncomfortable were some of those questions for you? Well, the economist and social scientist, Thorsten Veblen, who, who lived back in the, the um, mid-1800s to, to early 1900s, in his 1899 book called The Theory of the Leisure Class, he writes, Veblen writes, one's sense of the proprieties is readily offended by too detailed and intimate a handling of industrial or other purely human questions at the hands of the clergy. These matters that are of human and secular consequence simply should properly be handled with such a degree of generality and aloofness as may imply that the speaker represents a master whose interest in secular affairs goes only so far as to permissively countenance them. In other words, in other words, oh, oh, those academic, uh, people from the academy, <clears throat> 
Ministers should not be talking about commerce, business, or money, except in generalities, that's what he was trying to say, and not getting their hands dirty with those secular details. Well, um, under the theological principle that the purpose of the church and the purpose of the minister is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, I will proceed. Money matters, money matters. It gets us that car, those books and CDs and DVDs. It allows us to take our pets to the veterinarian, our kids to the, to the doctor, to buy those seeds or those flowers, those trees, the put on the new roof, our vacations, that cabin in the woods, our art supplies, those yoga classes, and education beyond high school. Money, money matters. Now, I know my spouse, Tim, um, when he teaches his pharmacy students, regularly asks them to differentiate between what they need, those, those basic necessities of human life and academic life, without which it is difficult to proceed, things like a, a couple of meals a day at least, and transportation, books, communication devices, and those things that they want. A big house, oh, the second house at the lake, the Beamer or Mustang or big truck, the, the widescreen TV. He asks, what is it we truly need and what do we want to have, to own, to buy? Now, philosopher Jacob Needleman wrote this book called Money and the Meaning of Life. And, and I first, it's a, it's a getting to be a fairly old book. It's, it was written in 1991. I, I picked it up, of course, in Chicago when I was at seminary, and we'd, I just had a sem seminar with my very favorite um, professor minister, and we were discussing what were the members of the seminar, what were their, was their philosophy, their theology of giving to the many um, street people that we ran into on our way between Hyde Park, very um, wealthy part of Chicago, and the north side of Chicago, or I'm sorry, the south side of Chicago, a very poor, mostly black area. Um, what would we give and why would we give it? Interesting questions to me. So I picked up this book, and Needleman writes about three money exercises. Recall your first childhood experience with money. What was it, and how did it make you feel? How were we taught, or, or were we taught, about the, use, the uses of money? The second ex exercise is to walk out into the street and give the first person you meet, well, back then it was a dollar, maybe five dollars, a ten-dollar bill, and just walk away. How does that feel, and how would you feel if you were the recipient? And the third exercise was keep an exact record of every penny we spend during a week or a month. What feelings arise when you think about doing that? A little bit of anxiety, a little bit of, oh, just another something to do. Now, Needleman writes, in our time and culture, the battlefield of life is money. Instead of horses and chariots, guns and fortresses, or maybe in addition to guns and fortresses, there are banks, checkbooks, credit cards, mortgages, salaries, the IRS, 
the taxman. But the inner enemies of our human responses and attitudes remain the same now as they were in ancient India or feudal Japan. Our feelings towards money, fear, self-deception, vanity, egoism, wishful thinking, tension, violence. Money certainly can bring up our fears. Do I have enough? Can I pay my bills? Will there be anything left at the end of this month? Uh, in certain situations at the end of this week or at the end of this day. Money brings out our vanity. Ah, look at that $4,900 designer dress that I can buy, these $800 shoes. Now, I have to look these up because, and these are low-end designer clothes and shoes. The, 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 the dress was a Dior for a mere $4,900, half of what some of the, those other dresses went for. The shoes were Christian um, Louboutin. Louboutin, um, uh, those are the ones with very high skinny heels with the red, bright red soles. Um, $800. Those were on the cheap side, too. <gasps> Everyone will be so envious. Money strokes our ego. Ah, another raise, I must be doing something right. I'm making twice as much as my brother-in-law makes. Money can be part of wishful thinking. Ah, just one more charge on this. This plastic won't be such a big deal. You know, every month we're, we're paying off, making some dent in that balance on our credit card. Money worries, money arguments all lead to stress tension in our personal lives, sometimes even despair and violence. So, so money matters. Money matters. Uh, another author, Lewis Lapham, he's the author of Money and Class in America. He was the former editor of Harper's Magazine, and he claimed that money is like fire, an element as little troubled by moralizing as earth, air, and water. We can employ it as a tool or, or dance around it as if it were the incarnation of a god. But money votes socialist or monarchist. Money finds a profit in pornography or translations from the Bible. Money can commission a Rembrandt and underwrites the technology of Auschwitz. Money, he writes, acquires its meaning from the uses to which it is put. So money matters. Money matters in the way we use it. So back to that book, Money and the Meaning of Life, Jacob Needleman talks of his aim as nothing more nor less than to sacralize the money question, finding the precise place of money at the heart of the most important undertaking of our lives, the most important undertaking of our lives, which he says is the search to become what we are meant to be in the service of that greatness that calls to every man or woman on this endangered earth. Now that greatness may be God, that greatness may be the idea of justice, that greatness may be the environment, that greatness may be science or the arts but that calls to all of us to be of service. And here are the theological questions concerning money. Where is money and money's place in our lives? 
How is money supporting us in our search to become what we are meant to be? How, how are we using our money in service to each other and to our endangered earth? How do we consciously and conscientiously acquire money, spend money, donate money? How does money make a difference in our lives and the difference in other people's lives? Needleman tells us that humans have two imperatives. The imperative need to reflect upon why we human beings are, are on earth, why we live and die, and the imperative to find our way intelligently and with honor in the rough and tumble of everyday life. So how we, we reflect on these questions, why am I here? Why are we here? How shall we live? And how shall we live with one another? How do I live intelligently with honor? Needleman asks us to reflect on how money is a part of our answers. So Needleman uh, tells us that money can buy everything. The only thing it cannot buy is meaning. The ultimate source of every human activity, every human function, is something, some force beyond the ego. Some, something, some force beyond our ego. Money can't touch that, but it touches everything else. Money matters. So thinking about money matters. And Needleman concludes, what is most necessary for humans and what is given us in great abundance are experiences, especially experiences of the forces within us. Experiences, going to Machu Picchu, going to the Galapagos, going out into the woods, to the lake, into ourselves. This is our most essential food, our most essential wealth, he tells us. If humans consciously receive all this abundance, the universe will pour into us what is called life in Judaism, spirit in Christianity, light in Islam, power in Taoism. I would say that one needs money to live and survive in the outer world, to fulfill one's obligations to the community and to nature, but above and beyond this role, Needleman tells us, the role of money is to serve as the instrument forgetting understanding. Hmm. So money and how we use it is a spiritual matter. We well consider the, the story of, of the Christmas Carol. Um, you know, Charles Dickens, back in 1843, there's Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, that word has come into our vocabulary. To be a Scrooge is to be a... a, a uh, a very self-centered person. And then, of course, there's his business partner, Jacob Marley. And we realize how money was a jailer, a noose, a, a binder, and a blinder for them. Now, after the spirits of Christmas visit Ebenezer Scrooge, his mind and heart are changed, and we see a new person. We're given social and psychological and theological insights. He truly becomes part of his community, part of his world. It's a spiritual journey. 
A generous person is a joyous person. Generosity is healthy. Generosity is good for the community. A grateful person is a more whole, a more gracious person. A generous person is a wiser soul, a grace-filled being, a person filled with the spirit of life, a magnanimous soul, a, a being of power and light. So think about, yeah, how you're using your money, why you're using your money the way you're using it. And finally, Unitarian minister John Wolfe. Now, John Wolfe um, just died last November. He was in his 90s, and he was the longtime minister of All Souls Unitarian in, in of all places, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was a huge church for years. It was our largest church, well over a thousand souls. He had a weekly radio program. We have the, the um, good fortune of having a, a niece and nephew who belonged to that church. Um, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful gift. And John Wolfe explored the idea of support and generosity this way. And he writes, there is only one reason for joining a Unitarian or Universalist church, and that is to support it. We want to support it because it stands against superstition and fear. Because this church points to what is noblest and best in human life. Because it is open to women and men and others of whatever race, creed, color, place of origin, or sexual orientation. He continues, we want to support a Unitarian church because it has a free pulpit. Because we can hear ideas expressed here that would cost any other minister his, or he wrote her, but it's usually his job. We want to support it because it is a place where children come without being saddled with guilt or terrified of some celestial peeping Tom, where they can learn that religion is for joy, for comfort, for gratitude, for love. We want to support it because it is a place where walls between people are torn down rather than built up because it is a place for religiously displaced persons of our times, the refugees from mixed marriages, the unwanted free thinkers, and those who insist against all orthodoxy that they must work out their own beliefs. We are a refuge. We want to support a Unitarian church because it is more concerned with human beings than with dogmas, because it searches for the holy rather than dwells on the depraved because it calls no one a sinner, yet knows how deep is the struggle in each person's breast and how great is the hunger for what is good. We want to support a Unitarian church because it can laugh, because it stands for something in a day when religion is still more concerned with drinking and smoking or homosexuality and abortion, transgender, death with dignity, dignity than with child abuse and sex trafficking, with prejudice and war. We want to support it because it calls us to worship that which is truly worthy of our sacrifice. Yes, he concludes, there is only one reason for joining a Unitarian church, and that is to support it.
And he makes this throwaway comments about this is the church where people can laugh. A, a number of years ago, I, I got a book, and I, I, I always bring my, my bit minister's bookshelf. Sometimes I bring scads of books. Uh, today, not so many. Money and the Meaning of Life, of course. Um, Money and the Meaning of Life, Jacob Needleman. Noisy Stones, from which um, it's a wonderful meditation manual by, by Robert Walsh. Um, a couple of others that struck my fancy. Selling God. Um, yeah, Selling God, American Religion in the Marketplace of Culture. And um, I think I gave away my, my Our Gods Wear Spandex book um, I, uh, to, to some youth group. Um, and, and Nickled and Dimed, or Not Getting By in America, Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, but here we have the church where people laugh. Ah. So, did you hear the story of the two men marooned on the island? One man is pacing back and forth, worried and scared, while the other sits back and suns himself. The first man says to the second, aren't you afraid we're going to be left here forever, that we're going to die here? And the second man responds, nah, not at all. You see, I make $10,000 a week, and I give 10% of, uh, of that to the church. I tithe. <laughs> I tithe faithfully to my church every Sunday. <laughs> Those folks are going to find me. <laughs> yeah. Ah, if any, any of us only made $10,000 a week. My. And then there was the other story. Once upon a time, there were two churches in a small rural village. One was universalist and one was very conservative evangelical. Now a visitor came through and asked um, one of the, the villagers, why did they have two churches in such a, a very small town? And the resident replied, well, that church, the universalist one, says there ain't no hell. And that church, the evangelical one, says the hell there ain't. Two churches, yeah. Playwright Thornton Wilder, in his play *The Matchmaker*, it was the the um, play upon which the musical *Hello Dolly* was based. In that, the lead character, Dolly Levi, tells us, "Money is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it's spread around, encouraging young things to grow." Yeah. So even after all this time. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. So our support of greenness and growing, both ourselves and the community, the outside world, support of that which is truly worthy of our sacrifice. May we be generous in all we think and say feel and do. May it ever be so. May we make it so. Blessed be and amen. Well, our closing hymn is, there is an error in our order of service. It is 1007 in our teal hymnal. 1007, there's a river flowing in my soul. And if you would rise in body or spirit as you are able.
There's a river flowing in my soul. There's a river flowing in my soul. And it's telling me that I'm somebody. There's a river flowing in my soul there's a river flowing in my heart there's a river flowing in my heart and it's telling me that I'm somebody there's a river flowing in my heart there's a river flowing in my mind there's a river flowing in my mind and it's telling me that I'm somebody there's a river flowing in my mind there's a river flowing there's a river flowing there's a river flowing in my soul so go in peace live simply gently at home with yourselves act justly, speak justly, remember the depth of your own compassion, forget not your power in the days of your powerlessness. Do not be, desire to be wealthier than your peers and, and stint not your hand of charity. Practice forbearance, speak the truth or speak not. Take care of yourselves as bodies for you are a good gift. Crave peace for all people in the world, beginning with yourselves, and go as you go with the dream of that peace alive in your heart. Carry the flame of truth and love, warmth and community in your heart until we're together again. Please sit for our postlude. Thank you. 